Well, good morning. Um, my name is Devin, and uh, last week I had the privilege of getting to introduce our new series, uh, Understanding the Bible and Getting a Big Picture of the Bible. And this is a series that we'll be doing through the fall, and uh, there's going to be quite a few different speakers. And today we have a real privilege. Uh, uh, Where's my friend Tom? Tom's around here somewhere. Okay, he's on his way. So, um, uh, uh, Thomas Middlebrook is a professor from Simpson College uh, up in Reading and has agreed to bless us this morning. And um, I've had an opportunity to get to know him before service, and he is uh, a real Jesus lover. And um, I'm just excited to hear what you have to share with us today. And so, Father, would you bless the words of his mouth? Would you speak through him? And would you open up our eyes to see your work in history? and your work in each of our lives, that you've invited us all to be a part of your story, which is relayed to us through the Bible. Would you bless Tom? And uh, Lord, just give him a great time as he speaks to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. For those gathered here at Neighborhood, in the house and online, I greet you in the name of Christ and in a deep celebration of the gospel of peace. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts and our response in embodied service to you this week be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I am truly honored to have been invited uh, to speak in this sermon series. I commend the leadership team for attacking this topic. Uh, As mentioned, my name is Thomas. I'm originally from Nacogdoches in East Texas, where people talk normal. And I did my undergrad at Wheaton College, and then I decided to take my WWJD bracelet a little too seriously and became a carpenter for a number of years. And I loved it. Um, But eventually, with a hurt back, I decided, you know what, Let's, let's get back to school. I attended Trinity back in Chicago, got my uh, MA and PhD there, and now I teach at Simpson University, specifically with Tozer Theological Seminary there. Let's see if this works. Yes, great. This is my household. Um, That's my wife of 16 years, Katie. It's my 13-year-old and 10-year-old daughters. Uh, and the primary full-time resident of my home, Suki, the, the beloved cat. Yeah. I've been invited this morning to speak about the historical reliability of the Bible. But Andrew's not here, so I can talk about whatever I want, right? Yeah? Well, the truth is, there's nothing I'd rather talk about. <laughs> Nothing I'd rather talk about than the embarrassing amount of evidence from biblical archaeology and historical materials that perfectly matches our expectation when we read 
the Bible closely. So, are you ready? I have way too much material, and the exam at the end is cumulative. All right. Before we begin, I would like to give you a pro tip, though. You see, there's a ghost behind me, and it's not just the Holy Ghost. It's the ghost of Indiana Jones. The only real thing that archaeologists have in common with Professor Jones is that they would all be pretty okay with punching Nazis. <clears throat> However, he does offer one good lesson, and it comes in the third movie, The Last Crusades. Indiana finds himself required to select the true Holy Grail, and it wasn't a plastic cup, uh, amidst all the fake ones. <laughs> The last lesson comes, this lesson comes when Jones passes over all of the fancy, shiny chalices and he settles on the humble earthenware cup. This boring piece of pottery with an unnamed Israelite woman's fingerprint on it, if you look closely, which I excavated speaks far louder to me than any golden cup or treasure. Not all that glitters is gold, a familiar lesson. And when it comes to biblical history on TV or in the movies, nothing that glitters is gold. Just, I know you love the Bible, but, you know, if you see something on TV about the Bible, like on the History Channel, just click. <laughs> They are such an unreliable witness so often, you are far better off just reading your Bible. And kind of another one, don't push your historical arguments for the Bible on suffering people. Give her healing or give him friendship amidst his suffering. See, we often confuse the power of the work of God in this world with arguments about God's work. And 1 Corinthians 8 says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Our mission remains to love our neighbors well. Of course, the good news wouldn't be so good if it were all fake. <laughs> False claims would actively destroy our faith. If there were no valid evidence for God's work in the world, then Christianity wouldn't exist. As Peter says here, you could just imagine Peter saying, I'm not clever. <laughs> I'm just a witness. Neighborhood, you don't have to be clever. You just have to be a witness. And thankfully, the Bible is our reliable witness to who God is and what he is doing in the world. <clears throat> With my time remaining, I'd like to talk about how history can help you witness. History done well can help us to set the right expectations, to make the right connections, and to focus on the right story. Are you ready? So let's begin with this first one right here. History helps. What are your expectations to find characters derived in the Bible, in the ground, in history, 
out there as we investigate these things. Which biblical names do we even expect to find in the archaeological record? And what I'd like to do is move through a few stages of history from the Old Testament, asking that same question along the way. And we're going to start with Abraham, because he really starts that main thrust of contiguous history that pushes us forward. Abraham. So, who's Abraham? Abraham is a tent-dwelling shepherd and his family. Do we expect to find records of Abraham? No. <laughs> he's, uh, he's a pastoral nomad. It actually doesn't matter how many tent dwellers roaming around in the desert you have, they don't leave a trace. After a few thousand years, certainly not. Like Moses in his generation, they left no trace in the desert. And Pharaoh certainly wasn't going to brag about his spectacular defeat. <laughs> So, moving ahead to the Joshua and Judges period, how about some tribal raids on the Canaanites? Well, maybe you'd find that, maybe. And indeed, the first appearance of the name Israel in written record comes to us at this point. This is the, the Merneptha stela from about 1217 B.C., Right? Pharaoh Menephra is here bragging about his destruction of, quote, Canaan and Ashkelon and Gezer, some names we all know, but also Israel. The fun thing is the Egyptian script has what we call a determinative. It's a symbol which is written afterward after a word that tells you what kind of thing it is, like a field or a deity, right? or a city-state like Ashkelon and Gezer, or a ethnic people group. Israel would fit that description very well, a people group. And indeed, that's exactly the determinative that is given to them on this stela, Israel. They had just come into the land at this point, but they weren't a kingdom, right? So we have the right time, the right name, and the right kind of political organization, right when, as soon as we might expect it, right? Assuming a late date of the Exodus event, this is basically the first time the annals of history might have mentioned Israel, and boom, we have it. It's pretty amazing, actually, when I think about it. So how about if you had a founder of a dynasty, would you expect to find them in the annals of history? Well, Probably, yeah. You would probably expect them to find out. And this is especially the case because if you found a dynasty, then your name is given to that kingdom. Your name is given to that kingdom. So the kingdom of Judah goes back to its founding monarch, and that would be David. So Judah was known in the ancient world as Beit David, the house of David. The house of David. And our expectations for this are met once again. This is the Tel Dan stela. A stela is just a, a standing stone, usually with writing on it. And it mentions the death of the northern and southern kings of Israel and Judah. And it explicitly names Ahaziah of the house of David. Beit David, as you can see there 
in the archaic Hebrew script. All right. And finally, during the monarchical period, right? During the monarchical period, you have lots of bureaucrats, right? You have officials and letters being sent. Would you expect to find them? Absolutely. If you didn't find them, whew. but once again, the hundreds of seals and seal impressions found in Israel corroborate many of the biblical characters, like King Hezekiah's seal. It says King Hezekiah, right? King of Judah, right? Right there on that seal found in Jerusalem. Or you could take King Jeroboam's seal here, or any of the dozens of others. In total, more than 50 people in the Old Testament and the 30 extra more from the New Testament have been independently confirmed by ancient sources outside the Bible. I could go on, but I hope the point is made. All of our reasonable expectations are the Bible, and finding these characters are being met. Amen? That's just amazing. It's, it's wonderful and that's why I say it's kind of an embarrassing amount of evidence because people say, is the Bible reliable? Or do these things happen, right? I spent the better part of my adult life studying this. And I can say with a totally clear conscience, my expectations have been met when I read the Bible closely. Okay, second thing, the right date. So the right date. History helps us define the right dates of the events in scriptures. But how do we know when events in the Bible happened? They didn't have AD and BC back then, right? They weren't counting up the dates like that. Well, historians have two types of dating that help us, and I'd like to briefly explain those, how to get a date, right? The first type of dating is absolute dating, which doesn't sound great until you realize it has nothing to do with vodka. It has to do with empirical evidence that you can count and everyone can agree upon, like astronomical observations or carbon-14 dating or dendrochronology, these types of things. And that's one way to uh, get a date. And the other is relative dating, which also sounds bad until you realize I'm not talking about kissing cousins or anything. <laughs> relative dating is any of the dating that says something like this. James Monroe had dinner with Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, that's true. Um, but what has to be true of, uh, of that? that has, they have to have lived at the same time period, right? So we're connecting two characters that we wouldn't otherwise know were connected, right? They had to live at the same time period to, you know, share a meal in France. So that's a relative date. It's not connected to AD, BC, but at least you've got a connection between two, two events. So let's see how this works for biblical history. This hunk of clay you see before you on your right is a cuneiform clay tablet that's writing on there, that's wedged in there, and it's known as the Assyrian Eponym Chronicle. And in it, this chronicle names each year, year after year, after an important Assyrian official. 
And that Assyrian official and a fun thing that happened that year runs in an unbroken chain of about 260 years. It's a historian's dream. And there you go. You have relative dating to each year, 260 years, and this would be great. But when did it happen? If only we could connect it to absolute dating. Uh Amazingly, on June 15th, 763 BC, at 636 AM in Aleppo, modern-day Syria, there was an observed a five-minute total solar eclipse, which made it into this Assyrian eponym chronicle. And so, thank you, NASA, for that data. (laughs) And thank you, Assyrians, for mentioning it in your chronicle. Houston, we have landed on a date. Thank you. So, going back to the Bible, you can also get a list of relative dates. Um, You can get all of the kings of Israel, and they tell time like this. I was born in the reign of so-and-so, Hezekiah's second year. Oh, you were born in the the second year of Hezekiah too? We're the same age. That's how they told time. When did the king come to power? Because everybody knows when the king came to power. So we have a whole unbroken chain from Scripture from the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and they're related to one another. This ladder is great. It gives us a nice chain of several centuries, but like the eponym chronicle, it is floating around. How do we know where it relates? If only we could connect it to the Assyrian timeline, that would be great. And this is so fun. This is so fun. Let me introduce you to two of my favorite artifacts. This stela is known as the Kirk monolith. All right, both of these artifacts are coming from the days of Shalmaneser III, an Assyrian emperor. And the Kirk monolith mentions the year 853 BC, because we know, right, now what BC dates are in Assyria's timeline. And it mentions a battle he had with these pesky Arameans and the Israelites, and it specifically names Ahab, their king, who brought a host of infantry and chariotry out to push them back, one of the few great battles that the Bible is completely just doesn't talk about. It's called the Battle of Karkar. And why does it talk, not talk about it? Because Ahab's story is not always God's story. Ahab's story isn't always God's story, but it happened The Assyrian king talks about it in 853. He mentions Ahab, which is pretty cool. Secondly, we have the Black Obelisk. And the Black Obelisk mentions in the year 841 BC, the subservience of a king by the name of Jehu. You can actually see a whole train of Jehu's servants bringing in goods of bronze and clothing as tribute to the almighty Shalmaneser III. And at the very front, it all leads up to Jehu. And you can see him there bowing down prostrate before his liege lord. 
Now, the mention of Ahab and Jehu by the Assyrian emperor is 12 years apart, right? So correct my math. I'm not a math major. 12 years apart. So if we were to reinsert this back into our timelines, then we can ask, does this 12-year gap match up with the Bible's split between Ahab and Jehu, right? That would be a reasonable next question. And yeah, in fact, Ahab and Jehu ruled exactly 12 years apart. There is no wiggle room. And that lack of wiggle room is actually the ideal situation for anchoring Israel's timeline into the Assyrians' timeline and solidly anchored through that solar eclipse. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. It's very tight. It's not the kind of thing you can manufacture. This is just the accidents of history showing the unaccidental purposes of God. Amen? In modern scholarship, there are so many connections like this that this ancient historical timeline, which was a little bit vague for a long time as we were doing you know, modern history, is now a tight web of connections. These dates aren't really moving. They are sure. And we can tell down to the year, later on in biblical history, down to the month and day of when these biblical events happens. Okay. Now to our uh, third thing. History helps. How am I doing on time? Down? Good? Okay. All right. The right focus. The point here is this. History done well helps us to keep our focus on telling the story rightly. The right focus. For example, we have this artifact. And this is an event that happened after the fall of the northern kingdom. In 722, the Assyrians wiped out the northern kingdom and everybody fled to the southern kingdom and they're consolidated and they're worried because Assyria wasn't done. They come wave after wave every season pillaging through Israel's territory on down to Judah's territory. And in 701 BC, Sennacherib, the new Assyrian emperor, and he tells us about what he's doing here in his prism. It's a, it's a historical document. In 701 BC, he says he surrounded and con- con- conquered 46 of Hezekiah's fortified cities. This is a quote. Fortresses, smaller settlements, and their environs, which were without number. I brought out of them 200,000 young and old, male, female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, oxen, sheep, and goats that were without number. I counted them all as my treasure. And as for Hezekiah, oh, I can find him in his city of Jerusalem, his royal city like a bird in a cage. And you wonder... He's talking here about the terror-inspiring awe of his glorious majesty, Sennacherib. He's bragging on himself. Where's the focus? Well, it's on himself. How does the Bible tell it? How does the Bible tell it? Well, 2 Kings chapter 18 says something very similar. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Jerusalem, and he took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king who was besieging Lachish. This is like the second city of Judah at the time. 
So far, it's all the same. And then Sennacherib's emissary come up and he said, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king and the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Behold, you are now trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, who will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. How then can you repulse a single captain amongst my master's servants when you trust in Egypt? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? Now he's going to claim he's got a word from the Lord. He said, the Lord said to me, go up to this land and destroy it all. And he's talking to all the people. Don't listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has the gods of any nations around you delivered them? The gods of Hamat or Arpad. Has the gods Shepherviam, Hena or Eva, have they delivered even Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, from my hand? And the answer is no. No. Who among all the gods has delivered the lands out of my hand? The Assyrian king styled himself as the king of the universe. So what will Hezekiah do? How will he look at this dark history and still focus on the right story? Well, I'd like to show you a few things from this uh, siege. And it happened in this place, right? There's a little red star there. We can zoom in here and we can see that Hezekiah has fortified where all those little pots are uh, places to defend himself. Lachish is there, highly fortified. And he, he stockpiled food, Hezekiah did, in these jars. And he stamped them all with his seal there. And he fortified this place, Lachish. And it might have looked like this in the ancient times. But this is just a podunk town. I mean, Assyria at this time, it is magnificent. It is resplendent with all the treasures of the nations that it is stolen and taken from people. But today you can go to the British Museum and you can look in the throne room of Sennacherib, which they took out of the capital Nineveh and put over in the British Museum. And you can look at what he was bragging about because he didn't just write it in that prism. He put it on this wall in rock reliefs. He depicted the sieging of the city of Lachish. Quite graphically, there it is. And you can still see there today, there's that slope on the side of the ruins. That's the siege mound that we saw just in this picture, the siege mound, it's still there. I mean, why move it, right? It's still there. And on the inside, you can see that these people were shooting bow and arrows and doing sling stones. And you go inside the city and start digging, and that's what you find. Arrowheads and sling stones. And the fight raged on. Fire was thrown down. And the Assyrians were good at their demoralizing, terrorizing tactics. They would impale people and flay them, awful things. And they carted off them with their women and children, just as he said, off to Assyria. It's a tragic story. These are Israelites. These are the people of God. And they all come to this with their different items. They all come to this person who called himself the king of the universe and made them all bow down and, and took the best, the exact opposite of the kind of leader you want. 
But why did it happen? The average Israelite had become complacent. They had begun worshiping other gods. They were fine with Sennacherib being their king as long as they didn't suffer. But the problem was that they were God's special people. And he told them, he tried so many times to open their eyes to the reality of what was going on around them and how their injustices were flowing down like an ever-flowing stream until the very land was crying out again and again. For several centuries, he warned them in their extractive oppression. Idolatry in the ancient world isn't just some figure that you worship. It's a way of life, and it is oppressive. To people. There's no image of God. There's no love your neighbor. And so Israel left their God. So Israel lost the hand of protection that God put on them. Thankfully, Hezekiah rejects the counsel of Sennacherib's emissary, and he takes the counsel of Isaiah, and he prays to the Lord to deliver him so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. And an angel of the Lord indeed delivers them, wipes out the Assyrian army, and Hezekiah uh, remains king until the end of his days. And so, all ancient historical accounts have a focused message. Assyria, like all empires, wanted to rule forever. They wanted to conquer the world and demoralize and murder anyone who stood in their way. This is the message of their prideful history. The biblical history has a focused message too. And it's not, ooh, I'm reliable, even though it is. It is, I am a witness to God's mission of redemption into which he invited Israel and invited his disciples and even invites us. Don't get me wrong, history done well can give you a lot of proofs, and we've seen some of those this morning. But it can give you a lot more, and this is my plea, is that you would stay historically minded. The two big fruits, aside from these proofs that I'd like to share with you, I've seen in my own life, and they're this, real briefly. Number one, they make the message clearer when you understand the history. That greater degree of precision, you kind of avoid some of the standard pitfalls. It's worth a lot. This isn't like the next episode of Rings of Power. These are the words of life. A clearer message on that is worth more than gold. And secondly, when you know biblical history well, you have a better imagination for the biblical persons and events. That realism of a character's situation helps you connect with their pain and the joy. And you realize God cares about real people's pain and joy. He cares about my pain and my joy. And it echoes. As we put ourselves in the shoes of those eyewitnesses of his majesty, then our historical imagination can also help us focus on God's majesty on how the Lord Jesus showed his powerful love in the past and how he's still doing it today. Neighborhood, the events of the Bible really happen. Jesus really died. He really lives again, and he's really coming back. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, there are those of us in here who are troubled by the things they hear about the Bible and the things they don't understand in the Bible. And I thank you that your Bible is so complex, even though it it confuses us sometimes, that you are a complex God and you are, are deep enough to plummet into the depths. You're not trying to hide anything from us. You're giving us deep waters to swim in for our minds, for our bodies, for our societies to learn from and grow from in your very words of life. Bind our hearts so much to you that we just want to hear your word a little more. That we want to share the life-giving word of healing to our neighbors a trustworthiness to our friends and the gospel to everyone we meet. And I pray this in your good name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thank you, Dr. Middlebrook. Yes.